media mogul Ted Turner said, if I only had a little humility, I'd be perfect. <laughs> Oscar Levant, the great composer, said, what the world needs is more geniuses with humility. There are so few of us left. If you uh, are familiar with Ken Taylor, who wrote The Living Bible and also a number of children's books, um, Ken had this extraordinary reputation of being like the most humble man you'd ever meet. And if you had inter any interaction with Ken, you would come away with that conclusion. And Ken, at his eulogy, uh, a friend of his was telling the story, he passed away in 2005, that uh, he was walking in the corridors of the Wheaton College Church and he overheard, Ken did behind him, two women say, that's Ken Taylor. He is the most humble person in the world. And so Ken later shared that story with a friend of his and said, you know, when I hear how humble I am, it makes me proud. <laughs> without deterrence, without delay, Jesus Christ is traveling to Jerusalem. Only through suffering will glory come. Only through the march of his walk to the cross Will the kingdom, will the eschaton be in place? Only through the death, burial, and resurrection can he establish the eternal kingdom that he wants to bring to us. Jesus continues to try to explain the kingdom of God in parables and in simple ways that the everyday man or woman would get, would understand. The kingdom of God is like, the kingdom of God is like. A man went on a journey, a man held a banquet, and he's giving them images that aren't just stories to entertain them, but with all parables and lessons, there are layers of meaning beyond the superficial. In Luke chapter 14, Jesus is again embroiled with his critics. Really, that's the theme of the chapter, Jesus' critics. And as these scribes, Pharisees, and attorneys, we need to clarify those are religious attorneys, not the way we think of the law today. Uh, these are not literary critics in the New York Times or a music critic that didn't like your record. These are religious political men with extraordinary power. And they could and they will yield that power to a maddening crowd that will yell, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And so Jesus, unfazed by all this noise, is headed to the Jerusalem. He's headed to the cross. He's headed to the last few days of his life. Now in Luke 14, we have the banquet imagery or meal imagery, a part of Luke's structure. Again, on the normal level, the communal aspect of having someone over to your home or being invited to a home is a wonderful thing. You share memories, you tell stories, you eat a great meal, you feel good, your belly's full, your love tank's full, your stomach's full, and you're having your comfort foods and all is right with the world and memories are made around a meal. That's one level. That little whiff of that feeling is magnified exponentially in the eschaton. The kingdom of God is described like a meal. A wedding banquet, a wedding feast. Happy are those, blessed are those who are invited to this great, the greatest wedding feast of all. When the groom comes and collects his bride and the Lamb of God will be eternally enthroned, all his enemies gone, and we will live forever with him in community, with him in worship, blown, our minds blown, and we will be like the best meal you've ever had. And I think there's a literal and metaphorical aspect to that in heaven. So when we read about these invitations and meals, keep that in the back of your mind. The surface layer, they're traps. The surface layer, they're invitations. But as we go deeper, there's more to the story than just about a dinner. Let's look at the trap they set yet again and Jesus' response. Luke 14, I'll read the first two verses to begin. It happened. 
that when he went into the house of one of the leaders of the Pharisees on Sabbath to eat bread, they were watching him closely. And there in front of him was a man suffering from dropsy. Now we've seen in chapter 11 that he had healed a, a person that was disabled. Chapter 13, a woman that was crippled. And all these Sabbath healings, are uh, in, they incense the scribes and Pharisees. And so yet again, they're setting a trap. This is not an invitation to an esteemed rabbi to hear him lecture or to ask him questions or sit at his feet like Mary and Martha and Lazarus would have done. This is a trap. And again and again, they're trying to catch him in something he might say. Chapter 11, 53 and 54, they're hostile. They're plotting against him to catch him in something he might say. So verse 2, and there in front of him is a man with dropsy. This is a total setup. They bring him in the room and right in front of him is a man with dropsy. Dropsy is from the Greek word hydropikos, hydro, hydro, water, edema we would say today. Don't precisely know what his disease was, but the symptoms, he's bloated. His, his limbs, perhaps, his legs, his arms are, are greatly bloated. And it meant watery in the first century, which is really an accurate description because he's full of fluid. And so he has dropsy, and this man is dropped right in front of Jesus because they want to see what he's going to do when he sees the man with dropsy. Verse 3, Jesus answered and spoke to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they kept silent. And this is the repeated refrain. They're setting a trap. They're not going to give him an inch. But he's going to ask them a question to which they cannot answer. Because he never is caught by surprise. He's the always deliberate, intentional Jesus. Verse 4 in the middle of it. And he took hold of him, the man with dropsy, and healed him. And sent him away. And he said to them, the Pharisees and lawyers, which one of you will have a son or an ox fall into a well and will not immediately pull him out on a Sabbath day? And they could make no reply to this. So Jesus' response to this in-your-face nonverbal trap is to heal the man and ask him whether it's legal or not to heal on the Sabbath. It's proper to do so. Uh, he said in chapter 6, is it, should you save a life or destroy a life on Sabbath? Should you do good or do harm on Sabbath? Now, some of us know uh, all the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue. All the Ten Commandments except one are repeated implicitly or explicitly in the New Testament. All of them. The one that's not is Sabbath. Every other commandment you can find clearly, explicitly, implicitly re repeated in the New Testament. But when it comes to Sabbath, why? Man was made for Sabbath. Sabbath was made for man. Sabbath was a gift. In giving Sabbath, God said, look, if you work six days really hard, take a day of worship and reflection and rest and trust me that you don't have to work seven days a week. What a great lesson for workaholics are we. To put it in another applicational way, your world is more efficient, more effective, more profitable, better run if you learn to take a Sabbath day. Working seven days a week will never get you ahead. And it's also a statement of faith that you're trusting God with that one day of rest from unplugging from the iPhone, the email, the texting, the work, the constant noise, the constant electronic tethers. And he's, I'm a rest. I've discovered a thing. The emails and the phone calls will always come tomorrow. If I don't answer them today. 
If it's important, people will find you. They just have a way of doing that. Well, Jesus is saying to them, the Sabbath was not a day to over-legalize. You can't pick up sticks when you go to Israel with me one day, if we live that long. Uh, when we pick up sticks over there on Sabbath, what are we doing? We're breaking the law. We're working. You can't light a fire on Sabbath. So the restaurants serve you meals that they don't have to heat. But I can't figure out, those waiters and waiters are sweating as they're bringing those trays in and out. But that's not the same as work. When Shabbat comes, everything shuts down. But it's religion and politics sewn together. The Orthodox do it a little differently. But the country, you see the, the legalistic add-ons to Sabbath. And they began here early in the first century. The Sabbath traps were not working. In chapter 13, 17, um, his, he was, his uh, opponents were being humiliated and the entire crowd was rejoicing. That doesn't feel good. The scribes and Pharisees have set you up and you're mad and all the crowds are cheering and praising God for these great things that are happening. This one's done in private in a home. Now, two times in this verses 3 to 6, they had no response. And what strikes me is they don't give a defense. They don't give an answer. They don't enter a debate. What strikes me is enormously, hugely complex and ironic is they set a guy there full knowing he can heal him and they're unimpressed with the healing, but they're upset about it being on Sabbath. It's just kind of mind-numbing. We miss it in the storyline. We don't know. Luke doesn't tell us, but we don't know the man's name. He's not recorded in the other three Gospels. And in my mind, he's done some Hebrew version of a cartwheel out the door after Jesus healed him. All we know is that Jesus took hold of him and healed him. Or that it was cancer or a liver disease or a kidney disease, whatever was giving him this, this dropsy, edema, he's cured instantaneously, without a word from him, with no conversation, with no exercise of a certain amount of faith. He's an object lesson, but he's not the point. And Luke, under the superintendency of the Spirit of God, moves him off the story to put where the point of the story is. You're trying to trap the Messiah on a technicality, and you're missing the fact he's working miracles. You're missing the fact that he's the one who's come. He is the expected one. Now, Jesus tries to explain to them, is the well-being of a son or even an ox important? And the answer to that would be, yes, of course. If your son was in a well, uh, drowning, yelling, help, help, help. Sorry, Sabbath. Dog paddle till dusk. Then I'll come and help you out. Of course not. To have an ox in the first century for the average person would be like middle-income America. That meant you had a very powerful farm machine, if you will. You had some acreage, if you will. You had tractors, if in our language. An ox was an enormously expensive animal, but it could do a ton of work. Pro proverbial in the Old Testament about the strength of the ox. And so oxen were considered a very valuable commodity for a farmer to have. If something is in danger, you save it. it doesn't, Sabbath wasn't meant to not help. And this is where Jesus will continually turn it on its head. Now, the political and religious powers are more concerned with who this Jesus is in so far as it affects them. Their position, their power, their politics, their lifestyle is all in jeopardy. And so they're out to dismantle him, to trap him, to show him a fraud so it doesn't affect their life. And this continues today. 
many of us read some of the books where people attack Christianity, uh, misquoting Jesus, the religion department chair individual who goes around writing books and giving seminars and lectures on the Bibles, essentially a fraud. Jesus may or may not have existed. Of course, he didn't do any miracles. Of course, uh, he wasn't resurrected from the dead. People that spend their lives, their livelihood on trying to unplug Christianity. It, it's, a, it's a fascinating thing to me. That kind of energy is spent when Easter comes around and National Geographic Discovery Channel, all these shows about who is Jesus and the resurrection and the shrouds come out and the grave uh, analysts and the archaeologists come out and they all are interviewed. It's always fascinating to me to watch that. And very few of them land the plane, right? It's always, we don't know. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Well, what's at the core of this? Don't make this too complex. If a scribe or Pharisee has a position of power and authority, and this man is coming in unsettling and upsetting everything they've been believing, of course they want to disprove him or they've got to embrace him. And embracing him will come with great peril, not only to their lifestyle, but to their entire system. The trap is switched, if you will, and Jesus now sets them into the trap, and he moves into what I call the parable of invitations, verses 7 through 14. When I read this, watch in your English Bible, you may have a little different version than mine. The number of times the word invite or invited pops up. and mine it's ten. In some English translations it's eight or nine. And he began speaking a parable to the invited guest when he noticed how they had been picking out the places of honor, saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor. For someone more distinguished than you may have been invited by him. And he, who invited you both, will come and say to you, give your place to this man. And then in disgrace, you will proceed to occupy the last place. But when you're invited, go and recline at the last place, so that when the one who has invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will have honor in the sight of all who are at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and everyone who humbles himself will will be exalted. And he also went on to say to the one who had invited him, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors. Otherwise, they may also invite you in return, and that will be your repayment. But when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Since they do not have the means to repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Now, on the surface, this invite just seems like a social invitation. And we've talked many times about fields of meaning. You look at how a word is used to understand how it means. We have to put a word in a context to define it. And the Bible is very important. The word invitation can be a social invitation, but it also can be a summons. You ever gotten a jury summons in the mail? Or if you've been summons to an interview or a deposition or you've been summoned to go to a trial. Those are sort of nerve-wracking letters when you get those. There's also another side of that summoning, which can be summoned to get an award. We summon you, we call you, we invite you to come and receive this award for your work, your altruism, your, your missionary work, your community service, whatever it might be. So the fields of meaning, I think, are very intentional on Jesus' part. Remember, the story on the surface is a banquet but the layers are eschatological about the future. They're missing the point. They're bringing a 
a, a disabled person to trap Jesus. And Jesus says, let me tell you how you should have done this. When you invite some people, this is what you should do. So the always deliberate, always intentional Jesus turns the trap on their head. I think this is very precise on our master's part, and I think it's delicious what he does. They're trying to trap him, and he's going to trap them. He's going to say, why did you invite me? You invited me to trap me. What are you as the religious leaders supposed to be doing today? Trap me? Or are you supposed to recognize who I might be? Aren't you supposed to care for those who are blind and crippled and lame and in need? Isn't that your role as the priest and the scribe and the lawyer of the day? Aren't you supposed to take the law to those people and help those people? Isn't that your job? But rather than that, you're setting me up trying to trick and trap me because you see me as a threat and you can't humble yourself to see who I really am because you're too proud. Because it's all about you. You're exalting yourself. And the rich irony is there are a bunch of these cronies in there with this one object lesson of one guy with dropsy. It would be the, it would be the, the, the forgive the analogy, but it would be the person who's on the street in a black tie event. He doesn't fit in the room. And Jesus embraces him, heals him. The guy cartwheels out the door and they're without a word. What do we do now? You almost wonder if they're going, who thought up this dumb idea, you know? <laughs> who was the one? I mean, he did it again, you know? Our traps aren't working. And Jesus, the all-knowing, goes after them to say, the real people who are in helpless situations are the blind, the lame, the crippled, the poor, those in need, and you're supposed to help the needy. Now, is the parable a literal parable to say, when you and I have a dinner, we never invite friends and neighbors and loved ones? No. Is there an axiomatic truth to this? Sure, it'd be a good thing to reach out and minister as we do with some, as many of you do, with some inner city ministries and different strategic partners that we come alongside. Great, wonderful. Is that the point of the parable? Always get the context. Religious leaders setting him up in a trap. He's talking to the religious leaders what they should be doing. Or to put it another way, he's saying to them, you're here to help the poor people who are in a helpless condition of sin. They're blind, they're crippled, they're lame, metaphors of sin. And you're missing the whole point coming after me. The middle of the structure is verse 11, which we've talked about the chiastic devices. And here again, Luke, masterfully with the Spirit's guidance, writes in the middle, right in the middle of the stack of verses, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. God is turning the worldly view on its head. He's saying it doesn't work that way. When uh, we lived in the Washington, D.C. area for uh, 12 years or so, um, we, Cindy and I became very into politics, um, obsessively so. We still are. Some of you are in the music industry and you're in the medical world or you're in education or whatever your world is. And, and that's your sports. That's your holicism. Well, ours is politics. We're just... We're, we're diseased. You can pray for us. Um, but we love it. We love uh, friends who are on the hill and friends who are fighting for good, and, and that's sort of our hobby. Um, one of my close friends had, had run 12 consecutive terms from his state as a, as a congressman, and um, he was in the fight of his life, and it, he was losing. And I asked him one time, I said, how can you do this without being self-promoting? And it was the only time I knew him that he was speechless for a while. Because he was a brilliant man, very articulate, always had an answer. 
And he was really quiet for about, you know, 30, 40 seconds. And I laughed. I said, it's a tough one, huh? He said, he said I don't think you can. I watched a speech two days ago by a, a, a senator who's in trouble. And I was going in my head, I, 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 I did this, I did that. All the times he said, I, me, my. You can't run for a campaign and say, uh, we think we're going to try as our group and maybe we can do some things. You have to say, when I am elected, when I do this, when that's all part of the playbook. You'll never get elected otherwise, right? So, how do you, those of you in the music industry, if I can meddle a little bit, as an artist, a writer, a performer, a producer, can you do it without being self-promoting? Now, yes, we have confidences and strengths and knowledge and ability. I'm not saying we never say a word. I, and and you, you can feel the tension here. Where's the nuance in your gifting and abilities and knowledge and when you're becoming self-promoting and all about me versus, you know, maybe I have a role here, maybe I don't. Maybe this is how I serve, maybe not. And that is where we begin to smell the humility and the pride factor. Um, let's admit it. We like the seats of honor. Just acknowledge it. We're all friends here. We're not going to tell anybody. We like to sit in the important place. We like to be called by important people and sit at the right table. We want to go to the hotel ballroom and those tables with no numbers on them. We want to go to table three right in the middle. Right under the speaker. We want to hear our name when he talks or when she talks. So glad to be here tonight with Michael. <laughs> Admit it. We like it. You know, I've discovered a thing over the years. When people get awards or recognition and there's a standing ovation, I don't know how you handle standing ovations, but um, if you've ever had one or been a part of one, but if you're in the audience and standing, a standing ovation, the definition is one person who won't sit down and stop clapping. One person who won't sit down and stop clapping. If they do it long enough, there's this sort of reluctant emergence of everybody getting up. Now, sometimes it's explosive and truthful at some level, but a lot of times, admit it, you and I have been sucked into a standing O because somebody won't sit down and shut up. <laughs> I really don't care at all about this person, but if I sit down, I'm like an idiot, so I'm going to stand up and clap like everybody else. Er, 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 er. You know, that's what we do. <laughs> and if you're receiving that award and you're smart and you have a standing ovation, you ought to know that. You exalt yourself. You're going to be humble. You humble yourself. It's God's job to elevate you or me or anyone. Jesus is not saying don't be reciprocal. Jesus is not saying you can never have a dinner function unless it's with people who are far more uh, disadvantaged than you. He is saying to the religious leaders in power, you have the law and you're not doing what you're supposed to do with it and you're not even recognizing me. You're trying to trip me up. You're going to continue to fail. When will you understand? Well, what's the big idea of the passage? The kingdom of God mindset has to be one of humility, not self and pride. The kingdom of God mindset has to be humility and not about me and not about pride. And it's a very devilish thing to deal with. Jesus is humble compared to the Pharisees who are proud. Jesus cares about a sick man compared to the Pharisees and lawyers worried about the Sabbath violation. Jesus is worried about, is concerned about humility. They're concerned about the seats of honor. And on and on it goes. And he's saying to them, you've tried to trap me and failed. Let me explain what these invitations really look like. There are summons from God. 
And God is inviting you to understand who Jesus is. And for all of your excuses and ployings and crafty traps, you're not going to catch Jesus on an off day. And until you can die to yourself and see your need of sin, blindness, lame, crippled, disadvantaged, redemption from sin, consecration to worship, you'll never be in a right relationship with God. And that's what the gospel is about. I came across this little, I don't know if you call it a poem. The problem with self. It calls for attention, craves it, demands it, longs for it, becomes jealous when ignored. How can it be, not be always, always about me? I am to do nothing from selfishness. I am not to be conceited. I am to be humble. I am to regard others as more important than me. But self always raises its head. Here's, here's the truth in this passage. You'll never miss a thing by being humble. You will never miss a thing by being humble. Because the stuff of life that puffs us up, momentary though it may be, is of no value. But the stuff that matters lies in the heart, in the brain, in the mind, that we walk humbly before our God. You will never miss anything by being humble. As we conclude that I want us all to stand and we will have a portion of Philippians 2 on the screens. I want us to read this together in unison. This is uh, where Jesus emptied himself, Paul writes. It's called the kenosis passage, meaning that Jesus left the glory of heaven, emptied himself of some form of his deity and glorification we'll never comprehend, became a man who was tired and hungry, who slept, uh, all, all the human infirmities, tempted like we are. And how Paul describes it is extraordinary. And as we read, I want this to to be your concluding prayer in your mind. You're not reading to me. We're reading as a corporate body. And I want you to try to hang on to some of these phrases that strike you as we think about. You're never going to miss a thing by being the humble person Christ wants you to be. Let's read it. It is the Word of God. Let's read it well. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation in love... If there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests but also for the interest of others. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, 
and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. You'll never miss a thing by being humble. God bless you. Have a great week.